0: Welcome, everybody, to part three of this series called It's Not You, It's Me. And I want to pause for a moment. I've done this a couple of weeks now. I want to—I just want to welcome uh, everybody watching online, all right, on you know, this holiday weekend, anybody out and about watching. Those numbers have grown. We've seen in the last few months, um, just been an awesome time. Uh, we have somewhere between 40 and 60 people every Sunday watching online with us, uh, sitting on the beach, right, in their hotel rooms, wherever they are. We love them, but not as much when they're at the beach and we're not, all right? We just, we, we love them. Love you guys, as well, we love that. But we've been on a journey for the last few weeks talking about relationships and this simple concept that every one of us probably have used in our relational or dating lives this little phrase, it's not you. It's me. It's a phrase we used to break up with someone when we felt like they had issues, but we didn't want to be the one to tell them about them, uh, right? So we came up with some way to blame ourselves, even though all along while we were breaking up with them, we were thinking, it's totally you. It is absolutely 100% you, but I don't want to be the one to let you know, and so I'm just going to figure out a way to blame myself. A theme verse, grab your notes if you haven't already, or if you like a fill-in-the-blank version, it's in the Victory Church app. Uh, Let's get to study in James chapter 4, verse 1, it says, What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you, to which everybody and many of the couples in this room are saying, This series, this series, would you just stop already? Uh, It is causing arguments and fights and conversations that we've been having. And it's just, would you just come on and cut them out? Because it's probably a good thing that a lot of you are having those conversations, right? About different things that maybe you're not doing correctly. But this is a good time for us to stop, pause, and remind ourselves that we are not supposed to listen for our sibling, for our friend, for our coworker, for our boss, for our spouse. We're supposed to listen for ourselves. All right, everybody? We're not supposed to take notes and then beat them up on the way home with those notes. We're listening for ourselves this series. We're going to keep the elbows down. Every time I do a relationship series, I always, as I'm preparing for it, as I'm studying, uh, if I find something funny or a verse or something like that, I text my wife. Come on, somebody. I'll send it to her, a verse that I think is funny, that I think is clever, that I would never actually share with you guys, but this morning is different. I'm going to share some of those, all right? These are some that I texted that first week before. It's not you. It's my expectations. These are the verses I texted to my wife, and I already asked permission if I could share these, all right? So here we go. We got these proverbs. Here's the first one that I texted. Better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Come on, somebody. I thought, I think I'm funny, right? I said, I I put the little emoticons, little smiley face, little like winky, right? You know, you guys know how that works. And so then I found another one as I was going. And so I sent this one. This is Paul talking in 1 Corinthians. Now concerning the things that you wrote about, it is good for men not to get married. Come on, somebody. I think I'm funny. I think I'm the funniest. Uh, Then another one Paul wrote a little later in the chapter. So I say to those who aren't married, it's better to stay unmarried. That's my point. That's next week's point. That's the next thing. Well, this didn't turn out the way I thought this time around because my wife texted back. I mean... (laughs) And so she said, we saw the little bubble she was typing, and so she sent this back. She said it was from her devotion, but I think she's just been holding this one. Here we go. Out of Judges. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to Benjamin. <laughs> 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 oh, to which I sent back, I don't think that's very funny. There's no amount of emoticons that are going to get that one. All right, everybody. So let's listen for ourselves. Let's let the Holy Spirit convict us. Let the Holy Spirit convict them. And we'll work on our relationships together. Come on, somebody. I'm a little distracted now. All right? This is, this is how my week is going. But James actually says where your quarrels and your fights come from. Let's look back at James 4. In our first verse, actually, that first one, he says, Isn't it the evil desires... Isn't there a whole army of evil desires within you? Isn't there a whole evil army of desires within you? So the underlying common thought of the series is that it's probably not everybody else's fault. It's probably that we have a little bit of the blame to share in the dysfunctional relationships we have in our life. In a lot of the relational dysfunction we see with our friends, with our coworkers, with our spouse sometimes, sometimes we have a little bit of the blame to share. It's not possible that the other person is always to blame, that we have no fault, that we are perfect. And so we have to take a step back and talk about the things that we could be doing to help in the relationship. And maybe some of the things we could be doing that hurt the relationship. We have to look at these with a critical eye, be honest with ourselves. Like maybe it is my expectations like we talked about in week one, or maybe it's my ineffective communication like we talked about last week. Today, I believe, is the most foundational problem that enters into our relationships, all of them, and even our relationship with God, and that is, if you're taking notes, jot it down, it's not you, it's my selfishness. It's not you, it's my selfishness. It's not your parents' fault, it's not your co it's the selfishness that you and I bring into our relationships. It's the selfishness that we bring into every relationship that we enter into and I want you to know this that this is something that we are born into something that's inside of us because from the beginning of time there was the archangel Lucifer who we call the devil or Satan who is the enemy of our soul and he was the archangel this head angel in heaven and he had pride the Bible says rise in his heart until he began to have this thought that I don't want to worship or give my worship to God anymore I want worship to come to me I want things to revolve around me I want to feel important I want to feel significant and so I will make myself like the most high And that's when the Bible says when God tossed him out of heaven and down to earth. And then he began with Adam and Eve to get them to believe the lie that the world revolves around them or that they should be as God, that they should be important. This concept of selfishness that you and I were created somehow to be the center of the story is the lie that he brings. It's this idea that we were created then to be the superhero or the super main character of every story. And honestly, that's kind of how we're raised. That's the philosophy that we're taught to believe that every person is the center of the story and everyone else, even God himself, is just a supporting cast member in our story. That they all just revolve around us, that they all just enter our lives so they can do things for us and then they exit the stage. And even God himself has been placed in that category when we buy into this lie. And that's the whole role of my life is I am the center. We all are born with this perspective. We all have this. Any of you who have raised kids, when they reach toddler age, you understand this, right? Any parent who has a child in that three to six range, you understand the first word that they ever learn is mine. Mine. Come on, somebody. Parents, where are you at? It's just mine. And you're like, no, it, that's my cell phone. No, it's mine. Well, clearly it's not yours. No, Mine. 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 Come on, it's like the birds out of Finding Nemo. Somebody. It's just, it's just, I have that, I got three kids, right? It's just, just a parrot of that, mind, mind, mind. Because you never, you never have to sit your child down and explain to them when they reach that age, you never have to have this conversation where you say, would you just stop sharing your toys already? Would you just stop giving away everything that you own? Just stop being so nice to all the other kids. That's yours. You can play with, it. you never have to have that conversation. Because from the get-go, the idea is, well, no, it's mine no, you have to say, would you please start sharing? Would you please learn that you have to give all these things? And They're just, no, it's mine. It's mine. And we think it's cute and it's funny and they're going to grow out of it, but we don't. Yeah. We don't. We are a selfish, self-focused individuals, and it's this selfish perspective that goes through our entire lives, and if we don't recognize it, it will destroy our relationships. If we don't recognize that we've let this thing grow into an adult version of selfishness, And we let it destroy our relationships. I can prove it to you. What happens every time you ever take a group photo? What's the first thing you look at when you see that photo? Some of you are embarrassed to admit it this morning. Some of you don't want to say, I don't care. The holiest person in this room, what's the first thing? You look for yourself. You think, do I look good, right? Is this a photo I can send to other people? Is I, am I making a face? Like, what do I, do I look great? I don't know. Like, what side is in the photo? Can I, do I delete this and all copies of this? Or can I, can I post it? Can I filter it? Can I cut out people? Can I just put? You begin to think, you, what's the first thing we look for is ourselves. It's just a bend that we have inside of us. The truth is, if we allow that perspective into our friendships, into our relationships, especially into our marriages, if we allow that perspective, it is unbelievably destructive unbelievably destructive. So today I want to take a journey to see how it's impacting our relationships, to see how this this idea of selfishness is impacting every relationship we have in the world, every relationship we have with other people, not just marriages, not just friends, not just siblings or coworkers, but all our relationships. And then I want to see what it would look like if we had a relationship without selfishness, what that would look like in our life. So we're going to look at those. See what we need to embrace as we finish out this series. All right, everybody? We'll start in James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you are bitterly jealous, so if you're jealous and there is selfishness or selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. Now, so many of us understand that it's not acceptable to be jealous and selfish in our relationship. We understand that concept. Even though it's what the world tells us to do, we understand that to be openly jealous or openly selfish is not acceptable. And so many times we'll lie and we'll boast about how good we are, or we'll lie about the things that we do, or we'll lie about our motives so we can hide that, but the selfishness still remains. That's what he's addressing in this chapter. Verse 15, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Now I want to pause there for a moment and make you aware of the fact that this is how the world tells us to do relationships. Because the world will tell you, you got to get what's yours. I mean, you gotta gotta look out for yourself. You gotta go after those things. You gotta work hard to get what's yours. Make it all about yourself because that's what's smart. That's how you get ahead. That's how you go and that's how life should go. And so we're always searching for people that will make us feel good about ourselves. Oftentimes in the way we select friends, oftentimes in the way we search for a spouse, we're looking for somebody that will make us feel good about ourselves that will fulfill our needs, that will fulfill the things that we need. And James says, that's not wisdom. Such things are earthly unspiritual, and demonic. Now, this is where we're gonna kind of hang out for a little bit. We're gonna kind of dissect this phrase because it gives us three things or three perspectives or attitudes about relations. Check it out. We'll go to verse 16 and show uh, where this all leads, and then we'll come back to 15. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. So when there's selfishness, when you allow that to go into your relationships, you find disorder and evil of every kind. The Greek word for disorder there is a word that I cannot pronounce. I'm not even going to try it, all right? I tried it a couple times yesterday. It doesn't work. Vine disorder, but it means unstable. It's a word that means unstable or even confusing. How many know that applies to relationships sometimes? When there's selfishness in a relationship, oftentimes they're unstable and they're even confusing. Someone said, "That's, that's how it describes my marriage. Unstable, like I don't know where I stand. I don't know, you know, what kind of day it's going to be. Unstable, confusing. I don't know what we're trying to accomplish together. I don't understand, you know, what we're trying to do. I don't, a lot of times, when you let selfishness come into the relationship, it'll be unstable and confusing. In that environment, we open the door to evil of every kind. When we're in that, disab- we're in that, that, that environment where it's, it's just confusing and it's unstable, we let evil in of every kind. And then we allow the devil to creep in and begin to put these lies in our ear. We talked about it in week number one, where he begins to creep in and put those lies. Well, you have unmet needs and expectations, and he doesn't do this, or she won't do that, and, and they're just, it's just unmet, and we would allow him to destroy our relationships. So let's see what the path looks like to get here, because he outlines three things in verse 15, three things that we can understand the problems that we're facing. The first one, jot it down if you're taking notes, first thing he says is it's earthly. So the first thing that we do is we become too connected to the world. He says this thing, when you let selfishness in, it's earthly. It's an earthly perspective. It's too connected to the world. 2 Timothy chapter 3 in this verse. But mark this, he says, there will be terrible times in the last days. And these days that Paul is prophesying about are the days that we're living in. Watch this, what people will do. So then in verse 2, he says, people will be lovers of themselves. So we begin to love ourselves. That's selfishness. We'll begin to love ourselves, and then usually in conjunction with that, we'll begin to be lovers of money. And the reason for that is because we, when we begin to love ourselves, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, we, we become, we drift from God when we begin to love ourselves. And so then we have to have a replica or we have to have a replacement God in our life, and money is the strongest false God that you can find. Money is the strongest false God because money promises security and money's very easy to serve, and money is this, this, It does a lot for us and so we think well this can take the place of God and so we become lovers of money and so we think well we fall in love with ourselves as the world tells us to and then we fall in love with money because we're lovers of pleasure and then look what happens to the things in our lives our relationships and the rest of our lives here's the byproducts of them we become boastful proud abusive disobedient to parents ungrateful unholy without love unforgiving slanderous without self-control brutal not lovers of the good this is describing our culture this is describing the selfishness that is brought into our culture, that you have to get what's yours, that nobody else is going to work at that for you, nobody else is going to give it to you, and so you got to do what feels good to you, and you have to seize the day, right, and you have to take the things that you care about, and you need to be jealous of other people, you got to live for today, live for the moment, do what feels good, and we end up destroying all of our relationships, and you wonder why I have dysfunction in that relationship, in this relationship, in that one. A lot of times it's because we've allowed this love of ourselves, this love of money, and this love of selfishness to ruin all of our relationships. And it creeps in. And when that happens, this one we talked about, we become disconnected from God. So we become too connected to the world, and then we become disconnected, so we start to drift. So the Bible says not only would it be unearthly, not only would it be an earthly thing, it would also be unspiritual, So it's three things. Remember, earthly, and then it would be unspiritual. We're disconnected from God. We're too connected to the world. And we get distant because you cannot be a selfish or self-focused person and have a strong relationship with the Lord. Those two things cannot go hand in hand. You cannot be a selfish person and still have a strong relationship with God. Second Timothy, same verse. We're in verse four now. It says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so it's interesting he's talking about this because it's talking about people in the church because watch, it says in verse five, it says having a form of godliness. So these are in the church, these are believers in having a form of godliness but denying the power, not letting it do anything, have nothing to do with these people. Absolutely don't be one of these people. And so when we are lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of God, we have this form of godliness but we don't let it change us. We don't let the power actually work in our lives. And yes, ask, well, why, why would we not? Because why would this be a problem in our lives? Because God is more concerned with our hearts than he is with our spiritual actions. Having this, this form of godliness, but not having the actual power inside to change our hearts, God's not concerned with that. God doesn't; he, He's not so concerned. So this process plays it out in our lives, even as followers of Christ. And we need to know this. We need to be aware of this so that we can fight against it. Because if we just let it grow, thinking, well, it's not, it's harmless, or it's just something that's a part of who I am, we'll let it destroy every part of us. And we begin to drift from God because we love pleasure more than we love God. Now, we're worshiping something that makes us feel good. And so we're loving pleasure more than God. The Bible clearly tells us that God doesn't care so much about our religious actions as he does about our hearts. This was like all of Jesus' ministry to the Pharisees. This was his ministry to them. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. doesn't matter how much you serve. doesn't matter the clothes that you wear or what you look like or how loud the prayers are that you pray. At the end of the day, it comes down to if you are self-focused, if you are selfish in your, in your heart, if you're inside, then you're drifting from God. Then you're drifting from being a lover and, of God and you're drifting from being able to fulfill God's plan in your life. And the biggest fallout, I believe in this, is in our most important relationships. In our most important, starting with our relationship with God. And working its way down to every relationship that's important in our life. You see the fallout of this type of lifestyle. And here we are destroying the people around us because of our selfishness. That I got to get what's mine. I got to do what's good for me. And in that environment, number three, is we become blinded by the devil. So remember, it's three things. He said that it's earthly, it's unspiritual. And then he says it's demonic. It's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, you would need to know that there is an enemy of your soul And his name is the devil. He's trying to destroy you. He's trying to creep into your life and mind and feed this lie that would destroy your relationships that everything is about you. He's trying to feed this lie into your life. It's not that he's this this cute little character dressed in red with a pitchfork. And I think sometimes that lets us just kind of push him to the side because we don't really have to think about it. No, there's an enemy of your soul. There's an enemy of the soul. That's more important to think about than just trying to put a cartoon character to the side but be able to realize, okay, I actually have an enemy that we're fighting against. That's trying to get me to believe the lie. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about it a little bit. It says, Satan, who is the God of this world. Now, you need to understand this, that God gave dominion over the earth to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And Adam laid that down when he sinned, and the devil was allowed to be the ruler of this world. And so he says that the God of this world, so the devil is over this world and is the prince of the air. Now, Jesus defeated him at the cross, praise the Lord, that he defeated him, his authority over your life and mine at the cross, But the truth remains that in this world, he's allowed to still have authority for a time. And Jesus will return one day and kick the devil in the head and rule and reign for all eternity from the new Jerusalem, praise the Lord. That's how it all ends. We win. But the truth of the matter now, still in this earth, he's given power. He's given power over this thing. And so we need to understand the rule of the world, he's blinded the minds of those who don't believe, that they're unable to see the glorious light of the good news, that we become blinded. By the devil. And every time that we become disconnected from God and too connected to the world, we're allowing that lie to start to work within us. We're allowing it. We're letting that lie start to work and it's starting to influence us. And so many of us have been blinded in areas, or so many of us have talked with people who have been blinded. Have you ever had a conversation with a person who's just blind to an area? And as a pastor, I've had a chance to have a lot of those conversations with people where they just say, Well, I'm making a good decision, or this is what God would want for me. Or this is how I should act. Or this is the way that I should treat that person. Or this is what it is. I'm making a good decision and we're blinded to those things. And so many of us have pockets of blindness in our lives. We have pockets where we just, we can't see. By the way, this is one of the reasons that we push small groups so heavily here at Victory. Because you need to have people around you who are willing to tell you the truth. You need to have people who can see those blind spots. You need to have people who can see those things at work and they can tell you out of love, this is what's going on, this is what you're doing that's hurting yourself. You gotta have those people around you. But so many times I'm telling you we are blinded to things in our lives and it's out of a root of selfishness. It's out of a root of selfishness. So then what do we do about that? Because all of us walk the path of selfishness at some point in our lives. All of us sometimes push God away because we love ourselves too much. And we bind to this lie. So what do we do to get our relationships back on track? Philippians chapter 2. In whatever you do, don't let selfishness or pride be your guide. Completely opposite of what the world is telling us, by the way. If you've noticed that, there's a little bit of a, an opposite here in the verses that Paul is giving us. He says, don't let selfishness and pride be your guide. Instead, be humble and honor others more than yourselves. And then the verse 4, he says, don't be interested only in your own life, but care about the lives of others too. So again, he gives us three things. We're going to kind of outline these out of the passage. Three things that we can do that a relationship should look like. If we're going to beat selfishness in our lives, if we're going to become less self-focused and more focused on God and more focused on others, there's three things we have to do. Now we have to get rid of that selfish perspective. Number one, jot it down if you're taking notes. The first thing is we need to be humble. We need to be humble. The very first step is to take a step back and realize that, that the world does not revolve around us. Now, I don't know if I'm preaching something to free somebody today, but the world does not revolve around us. And we have to realize that if we're, gonna, if we're gonna fix this selfishness in our lives, that we are not the hero of the story, we are not the center of creation, that God did not design us to be the main character. Got quiet in here, all right, everybody? Just, you with me still, all right? We're still, we're still friends, all right? Can I just tell you clearly today that Jesus Christ did not come 2,000 years ago. He did not be born as a man, fully God and fully man. To walk this earth for 33 years, to die on a cross, to be raised three days later so he could come back to this point in history and ask me, Ben, now what was that dream that you had? Like, what was that grand plan you had for the world? Can I just come in your life and make everything that you want to do better? He didn't walk all that path. He didn't forgive us of our sins so he could show up and say, Ben, you know, I know you had this grand plan for the entire world. Could you just let me know? Because I think it's a great plan. I think I I could really make that happen. Because I'm telling you, there's a false message that wants to come into our lives that said, God wants to come into your world and you don't have to change much and you don't have to repent for much, but he'll just make all of your dreams come true. And that's a false message, it's a false gospel. No, Jesus died and was raised again so that now we can be crucified with him, that we can lay down our dreams and our plans, but we can then embrace the plan he has for us. And I promise you, it's greater than anything we could cook up in our heads. It's greater than anything that we could come up with, but it does have to happen where we lay down our ambitions, we lay down our dreams, we lay down our plans, and then we pick up the life that he has called us to live. We're resurrected with Christ. And he says, okay, now I have a plan for you. Now I have a purpose for your life. That's what the gospel is. And then we can become a part of his story that he's been painting from the beginning of time till the end of time. We can become a part of that. We can support the story that Jesus is painting in this world. That we are not the center of everything. And if you don't believe me, read the Jesus Storybook Bible. Come on, somebody. It's written for kids, all right? My kids love it. We have the audiobook version of it. It shows how Jesus is in every book of the Bible, how it all points to him. It shows you. And Paul said this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, here's the problem. Every day I kill Ben, and every day Ben comes back to life. He's incredibly frustrating, all right, everybody? It's just incredibly frustrating. But every day we have to put to death the flesh... Every day we have to die to our selfish ambitions. Every day we have to lay it down. Every day we have to crucify it. Every day we have to lay it so that we can pick up the life that God has called us to live. That we can pick up the unselfish nature of Christ, that we can pick that up and become like he has wanted us to live since the beginning of time, that he has called us to be these things. So every day I'm gonna lay down my ambitions. Every day I'm gonna lay down my dreams. Every day I'm gonna lay down what I want to see happen so that I can pick up what Christ wants for me. James chapter 4 says it this way. And this is a problem for us, by the way. He says, submit yourselves then to God. I want to start in that first half of the verse. Submit yourselves to God. This is not an attitude that is common in our country. This is not an attitude that's common in our culture. Now, I love America. I love this country. But at the end of the day, we need to understand that we are a country founded on the principle that we won't do this kind of thing. That we won't submit. This is not a submissive culture, everybody. This is not a submissive culture. And in some areas of your life, that's a good thing. It's okay to stand against tyranny. It's okay to stand against injustice. But we've allowed that mentality to then seep into every area of our life. And so we as a culture have thumbed our nose at God and everybody else and said, nobody's telling me to do nothing. Nobody's allowed to tell me what to do. Nobody's allowed to tell me how I should live. Nobody's allowed to tell me what I should say. And we've allowed that culture to bleed into everything that I'm not submitting. I was the Boston Tea Party, right? I'm not paying for that. I'm not paying for that. You can't make me. You can't tell me to do anything. But then when we've allowed this to seep into our religion, when we've allowed this to seep into our relationship with God, it's at the foundation. And so the verse is saying, submit to God. We have to allow that to change our mentality as a culture, as a church, that we need to submit. The reason why it worked in the beginning here is because this country was submitted to God. Come on, somebody, but we don't have to get political. Resist the devil, then he says, and he will flee from you. So first you have to submit to God. And then you can resist the devil. And so if we're, we're in this thing, well, why, why is he still bringing these lies into my life? And why am I still falling for all these different things? Because the first part of this verse says, first we have to submit, and then you have the authority to resist. Because first you have to submit your life and your will and your ambition to God. And a lot of us just skip right over that part. And we say, well, if I just resist, then the devil will flee. But that's not how it works. Because the power to resist, it only comes from God. It's nothing within ourselves. If we're going to be humble, we have to realize that it's no power within us that we came up with. It's the power of Christ that lives inside. It's the power of God. So first we submit, and then we walk this process of saying, God, I'm going to humble myself before you. I'm going to realize that I cannot fix it on my own, and I'm going to live for you every single day. 2 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, and pray. So first we seek this, we have this attitude of humility, this attitude that I cannot fix it on my own, that I need to humble myself and pray. Because a lot of times we like to think, okay, what are the four or five steps that I can take myself in order to fix this? And we let that bleed into our relationships. How can I fix this? Give me 10 steps that I can make this work. We have to humble ourselves before God, and you cannot fix it on your own. So then what do we do? We pray for God's wisdom and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. Says I'll hear that kind of prayer. I'll forgive their mistakes. I'll forgive the things that they've done. And then I'll bring a supernatural thing called healing. That I'll bring that thing called healing that we don't know better. We have to go into this idea of humility that we don't know better than the word of God. We don't know better than the morality of God that we believe we're allowed to say a certain thing or we're allowed to act a certain way. We don't know better. We as a country have to have this place of humility where we say we don't know better. Than God's word. We don't know better than what He has for us. And we need God to be involved if we want to see healing. We need Him to be involved if we want to see that. But it never starts until we take an attitude of humility. The Bible says God gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. So you think you're going to be resisting the devil, but you don't realize God's resisting you. There's pride in your heart that he's resisting. So we have to take this attitude of humility that God, I don't know how to fix it. God, in my marriage, God, in my relationships, God, in my friendships, God, in all these things, I don't know how to fix it, I need you. That's the attitude of humility. Second thing we need to do from our scripture, it says then we need to give honor to others. We give honor to the people that God has placed in our lives. We give honor to our spouse. We give honor to our sibling. We give honor to our friends, to our coworkers, to our boss. Come on, somebody, it's gonna, get, it's gonna get real up in here. We give honor to those in our lives. Romans chapter 12, be kindly affectionate to one another. By the way, I love this verse because it's talking about within the church. We give honor to those within the church. We give honor to those in our small group. We give honor to those, I'll stop there. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another and that word honor there in the greek means to give value or to give weight to to give value or to give weight to the other person now this is what happens in relationships especially marriages is that we get a couple of years down the road or maybe five or ten or 20 years down the road and we begin to have some fights and some water under the bridge and we begin to almost we begin to embrace this idea that i'm not going to listen to what you say anymore because it never ends in anything productive And we begin to say, well, if we're just going to fight that I'm just not even, when you open your mouth, I'm not even going to listen to what you say. And we begin to dishonor our spouse. We begin to dishonor those other people in our lives around us. And because we don't have great tools to resolve these things, we just kind of get to the place where we're jaded towards the other person. To every time they even start to talk, we just think, oh, now what's coming? And we begin to dishonor the other person. We begin to take honor from them. It's a culture of dishonor. And we all have these offenses, and we know them too closely. And so now we try, maybe through a series, a relationship series, or through a marriage conference or a book that we read, we begin to try to get some spiritual momentum going. And so each one begins to try and and begins to, okay, I'm going to try to live out that principle. I'm going to try to change this part of my life. But even when they try to do that, we begin to drag up the pain that was in the past. And so we can't let that go. And so we say, okay, really, you're going to try to lead me now? Are you going to try to be spiritual now? Are you going to try to fix that communication error now after all of this thing? And we let that past dictate and we, let it, we get to dictate what our actions are going to be. And even when they're trying, we're dishonoring them. Even when they're trying to make a change and so there's some spiritual manner, instead of honoring the thing that they're trying to do, we're saying, there's no way I can give weight to that. There's no way I could honor that. There's no way I'm going I'm to begin to do that. I can't give way to it. And we see it in every area of our marriage. And I was trying to think of a good metaphor for this. I was trying to think of a good example in our marriages or in our relationships. And here's one that I thought of that maybe has happened in every single relationship, every single husband and wife since the beginning of time. All right, everybody? Because it shows up even in where we want to eat. Because isn't it true that every husband and wife has had this conversation, baby, where do you want to eat tonight? And she says, I don't care. We can eat anywhere. And we think, really? You don't care? Really? Anybody? Every husband and wife has had this conversation, right? Like you don't care. When that happens, when it's like, oh yeah, I just have a taste for anything, I go right for the jugular, right? Buffalo wildlings, baby. We're going to get some B-dubs. We're going to get some chicken wings. And what's the response? No, no, we're not going to eat there. All right, all right, what about Taco Bell, right? We can have a feast for 45 cents. We can both eat, right? We can have an eight-course meal, cheesy, beefy, crunchy goodness. We can head to Taco Bell. Like, I can already feel it coming. Like, you can save money on the funeral costs. You don't even have to embalm me, right, everybody, right? You can, just, you can just stick, I'll be preserved forever. We can go eat, go eat. Something. No, no, we're not, we're not going there. And so then I think, okay, what about a bacon cheeseburger? Like, we can head down to Freddy's right now and get just the biggest cheeseburger that they've got. How about that? Is, no, no, we're not going to. Ladies, I don't know if you know this, but you have this kind of like a, it's greasy, feedy, crunchy, I just don't want You have that kind of thing. Every person, At this point in the conversation, every husband, we are ready to say, can I not respectfully remind you that 10 seconds ago, you said you don't care where we eat. <laughs> And if we choose to go down that path, then we're fighting again. Come on, somebody. Then we've got, we got a little arguments going on, and I'm no longer giving honor or preference to your decision because you don't just you don't like anything, all right? You just don't like food, you don't like food in general. But we begin to do that, and we let this happen though, in every area of our life, we let this jaded opinion begin to rise up in the way that we spend our money, in the way that we raise our kids. In the way that we have conversations, in the way that we talk to each other as friends or as coworkers, in the way that we begin to talk, we let this mentality of dishonor where we're no longer giving preference or honor to anything that they say or anything that they do. So we have to take a step back, no matter how much water is under the bridge, we have to take a step back and say, no, God is calling me to give preference and honor to you, to those in my life, and so I'm going to live that out. I need God's supernatural, come on somebody, intervention to be able to do those things. I need his intervention to be able to give weight and value to those ideas and opinions. And by the way, it's okay for them to have ideas and opinions. I'm going to set somebody free this morning. It's okay for them to be an individual. And if you attack them all the time with, well, no, you're just wrong in that, or no, you just, I don't care what you believe or what you feel. I just feel that you're wrong. That is dishonor. It's dishonor to them. We're discrediting who they are. So we give honor. We give preference. So then how do we do that? Number three is we close. And we walk it out every day. Is we need to be a servant. So we need to be humble, we need to give honor, and the way that we do that is we need to learn how to be a servant. We need to learn how to be, because our text says, don't just be concerned about your life, be interested in the lives of others. That's a wonderful reminder, because I think so many of us, myself included, so many of us in our lives without without realizing it, we don't pick up our eyes and look at the people around us. And sometimes it becomes our default position is to look at ourselves all the time and we forget to look at others. We forget to be a servant because we're too busy serving ourselves. Forget to be a servant. In fact, I wanna tell you a common scenario that I run into and I ran into it this week again. And so I thought it would be a great metaphor as we finish out the series. I don't often go to the store, uh, maybe once a week, but I I talk about it a lot because most of the crazy things in my life happen at the store. (laughs) Come on, somebody, It it just seems to happen that way. But when you're shopping, let's say you're shopping at Target and I've been there many times picking up uh, things that we forgot in the main run, or you're at Costco or Walmart, wherever it is that you shop isn't it true that when you go in there, and I don't know about you, all right, I don't know how you live your life, but to me, when I have to go in and get some things, it is not a leisurely activity, all right, it is a competitive sport, it is, I need to see how fast I can get in, find what I need on those aisles that are just horribly categorized, and get back out to my truck as fast as I can, all right, I don't have a stopwatch, but I keep time in my head, and like, how fast can I, and I'm working on this, I'm working on this, but I'm a high-strung type of person when I go into the store, I am just stressed, all right, I just, I need to get what I need, and I need to get back out, and if it's not where She said it was going to be. I just have problems in my life, all right? I just don't know if you can relate to that. But I'm trying to learn how to slow down. I'm trying to learn how to do that. But it's really important to me when I am leaving the store that I pick the right line to check out in. That is important. Like my identity is tied to picking the right line. Like I'm going to have a bad day the rest of the day if I pick the wrong line at Target in the morning, all right, everybody? If I pick the wrong day, it's very important. Like I want to be the best line picker in the history of people who ever picked the line. I just, I want to pick the right, I want to get through. And there's, I don't know if you know this, there's a science to picking the right line. Like you have to evaluate the people that are in the line with their stuff in their hands, right? Like you got to kind of look at them and see. I don't care if it's three people here and two people there, it depends on the person, right? It depends on, like if you see a guy who's like looking over the heads and like tapping his foot, that is a good person to get behind, all right? I'm just going to set you free this morning. That is a good, because he's going to be fast. And then you have to evaluate the employee who is checking out the people, right? Like, you have to, you have to take a look at that. Because if they are friendly, that is no good. Can I tell you, that is just, <laughs> that is the last thing in the world that you want, all right? You, just, you do not want a friendly, just talking about, like, I don't care about you. I don't care about me. I just want to get out of here, all right? Just fastest friendly, all right? Fastest friendly to me. That is what I want in my life. And so, you're just kind of looking at all these people and you're saying, and I don't, You just got to evaluate that person that's in front, and then you finally find the perfect line. So you finally pick out the one that you think is the right one. Isn't it true? This happens more frequently, I think, since I started thinking about it, that you finally pick the perfect line, and then you make eye contact with a person who also saw the line that you just picked. Come on, somebody. You see them down the way, and you look at them, and then you both look at the line, and then you look at them, and then you look at the line, right? And you have a choice to make. You have you have a choice to make. And I am ashamed to say too often as a pastor that I will drop my eyes down (laughs) and I will not treat that person as a human. They are not another person. They are just a supporting cast member in my quest to find the right line, all right? They are just doing, and they're looking, and I know that they think they saw it, but I know that what's right is I should be the first one into that line. And technically, I'm even a little bit closer, and I don't care if you run. It is my line, and I picked it first. And so we'll, we'll put our eyes down and we'll forget that it's a human being. And so we see that, and so we'll cut them in line because we think they're about to cut us. And so we'll cut them in the line. And this plays itself out in all of our relationships. I wonder how many times we do this with our friends, with our spouses, with our coworkers, how many times we do this where we see an opportunity and we see them as a person and then we see the opportunity and we put our eyes. And so if we could just dehumanize them a little bit, If we could just somehow bring up the pain that we have walked through, or maybe even the pain that they caused sometime in the distant past, then we can not treat them as a person and we can go after the opportunity, no matter what cost it is to them. Because I don't care what God's trying to do in your life, and I don't care what dreams you have. I see this opportunity, I see this way to promote myself. I see a way to keep my eyes on myself because I deserve it. I justify it because this is something I deserve because you did that way back when. And we say these things to our spouse and we see these opportunities to promote ourselves. And so if we could just get our eyes off of the person, I'm just interested in what I want to accomplish. Can I tell you, it never works out for you. It never works out for you in the line, by the way. And I could tell you this from experience. It never works out because while you're standing in that line with that person who is fuming mad right behind you the entire time, you get to the front and you realize that that target employee is a chatty Cathy like you were hoping they were not. And they're just going through like, oh, how you doing today? You having a good time, right? Oh, you got some diapers? That's so cute. You got some kids at home? That's great. What do you do for a living? And you have that moment that every pastor has like, should I lie? Because <laughs> that person is staring daggers in you right from behind, right? And you're like, I'm in sales, right? I'm just I'm like, <laughs> Because I'm definitely not a pastor and you definitely shouldn't come to my church because apparently I'm a total jerk. (laughs) We got to get our eyes off of ourselves. We got to pick our eyes off ourselves and put them on the people around us. Why? John chapter 15 as we close out the series. The greatest way that you can show love, the greatest way that we can show love in our relationships for a friend is to die for them. You want to talk about being a servant. You want to talk about what Jesus embodied in his life. In loving us, the greatest way we can show love is to die for them. To put their desires ahead of our selfish desires. To put them ahead of us in our opportunities, in chances to promote ourselves, in chances to take advantage of a different situation, and all these things. We begin to put them ahead of ourselves. Look, church, as we close out this series, the best thing you can ever do best thing you can ever do for your friend, for your sibling, for your parents, for your spouse is to look them in the eye and say, it's not you, it's me. It's my unrealistic expectations that I brought into this relationship that put this, this weight on you. It's, it's my inability to communicate. It's my ineffectiveness in saying the way that I actually feel and, and understanding the way that you are. It's my selfishness. It's my selfishness that I brought into this relationship that I put myself first so many times to your detriment, And so many times in our relationship, I've put myself above you because I deserved it. And so if we're gonna begin to have the relationships God has called us to have, we have to die to ourselves. To put our selfish ambitions, our dreams, we have to put them in honor of the other person, place them ahead of us, be a servant. And look, church, this is what the Bible says, is when you have those types of relationships, especially within the church, when we love one another, Bible says the whole world sees that. And they glorify Jesus. That's what the goal of our relationships is. That we would have relationships that are so vibrant in the love that we have for one another that the world sees it and they glorify our Father in heaven. That they give glory to Him. And that is God's plan for our relationships. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Every head bowed, every eye closed today. I just wanna pray over the relationships in our church. Father, we ask you in every area of our life that we have allowed selfishness to creep in. God, every area of our life that we have allowed, Father, selfishness to destroy, I just ask for healing today. In our relationships, Lord, uh, teach us to be a servant. Teach us how to truly honor one another. How to truly live our lives as servants, as giving honor, Father, as putting preference to them ahead of ourselves. And Lord, in our relationship with you, teach us to be humble. And so I want to pray a prayer over every relationship today, every marriage, every family, every brother or sister, every friend. I just want to pray a prayer over that. But before we do that, I want to talk to those of you who are here today, and maybe you're visiting or maybe you've been here for a long time. But you came in today and you say, I see all these things and and I see that dysfunction in my relational life, but I feel like God is just a million miles away from me and I don't feel like things could ever change. And if that's you today, I would just say to you that none of this happens. None of this change happens in our relationships. None of this miracle healing takes place until you are in right standing with God until you've submitted your life to Him. Because all of this other stuff is just byproducts of our relationship with Jesus Christ. All of these other things are just byproducts of that relationship. And so today, I want to give you an opportunity to make yourself right with Him. And you can do that with a prayer. You can do that with a confession that you can make today. Where you submit the will and you submit the control of your life over to him. And you say, Lord, I'm no longer living for myself. I want to live for you. And so I want to pray that prayer with you this morning. I want to give you that opportunity. No one else is looking around. Every head is bowed. But if you say, that's me. You say, Ben, I want to live my life for him. I want God to be close again. I want to submit myself to him. I want to repent. That's you. We're going to pray with you. And I'm going to give you the words to this prayer. But you have to say them and you have to mean them. So come on, church. We're going to pray this prayer with those who want to do it. Those who want to pray to submit their lives to Christ. Just say these words right now. And the whole church will pray it with you. Say, Lord Jesus, I repent for all of my sins, for all of my selfishness. Make me brand new. I accept what you did on the cross. I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. Now, Father, I thank you for every relationship in our church. Lord, I thank you for the miracle that you are doing, God, that we have seen relationships, we have seen things that seem too far gone could be healed again. And so I thank you for the miracle of healing. I thank you, Lord, Lord, for the miracle that you too in every life and every relationship. And so, Father, I pray right now, give us the strength. Give us the strength to see some areas, Lord, where we have brought unrealistic expectations in. Give us the strength, Lord, to grow in our communication, not just with our spouse, but with our friends, with our siblings, with our coworkers. Give us that ability in our relationships. You be in the midst. And Lord, we pray that where we have let selfishness and the enemy's lies creep in, we pray, Father, that you do the miracle healing, that, Father, you give us the strength to begin to live less self-focused and more focused on others. And, Father, we thank you that we can begin to lay aside our ambitions and our dreams and to follow after what you have for our lives. And we thank you that we can be an example to the world around us. And we can be an example of how great our God is. And we'll give you the glory and we'll give you the praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's church said amen and amen. Can we put our hands together for what God...